0: going to talk a little football to kick the program off today and we go to the scene of the 2021 gray cup all things being equal we're in hamilton ontario joined by rick Zamperin, former hamilton tiger cats play-by-play announcer and now the host of the fifth quarter on chorus radio hamilton chml rick good morning and welcome back good morning thanks for having me back and happy father's day to all the dads out there well the same to
1: you sir how many children do you have I have two, age 20 and 16, which makes me feel older and older by the day.
0: Yeah, I know the feeling, Rick. <laughs> I know it well. So let's talk a little bit uh, a little bit of football early in the morning here in British Columbia, where the BC Lions uh, and all the other teams in the CFL were idle all last season, and where it's pretty widely known right across the country, Rick, where this season is a make it or break it for the Canadian Football League. If we don't have a 21 season, we don't have a CFL going forward. So that, with that sort of tucked away, and we all completely understand that, that part, How's it looking? Because we know they voted for a reduced season down from 18 to 14 games, no preseason games, pushing the start of the season back to August 5th. That we do know from the headlines. What can you tell us about what's going on behind the scenes? Well, despite all of what happened last year with, you know, a request
1: for government funding, uh, a potential bubble format in Winnipeg and a reduced, a greatly reduced season of about uh, eight or nine games not transpiring, the Grey Cup being cancelled for the first time in decades. um, You know, I think the word I would use for 2021 is encouraging. I think for the first time in a long time, the CFL and especially its fans are encouraged by, you know, what is happening in our country with, you know, the the pandemic. We have vaccination rates that are escalating by the day and by the week. We have cases and hospitalizations that are going down. So those are two mm-hmm. very important signs. And you know, earlier this week the CFL and the CFLPA basically came together to agree on a uh, truncated season and abbreviated collective bargaining agreements that would, as you mentioned, uh, you know, set uh, off a 14 game schedule instead of the traditional Mm -hmm. 18 games, the gray cup pushed back to December the 12th. But I think, you know, delaying the start of the season to August 5th gives the league uh, more time to do a bunch of things. And that is number one, see those cases go down, see those vaccination rates go up um, quarantine their players, make plans mm. for training camp. There's not going to be any preseason games. It's basically going right. to be, you know, get in the camp, get ready for the season, and away we go. So I think, you know, from a health perspective, with rapid testing coming into the frame, Health Canada providing 60,000 rapid test kits to the CFL and probably yep. more to come in the, in the weeks and months to come, I think that's another positive sign. So Uh, Right now, I think it's, you know, cautious optimism, because as we know with this pandemic, much can change, but things are looking very encouraging.
0: I I agree. Uh, Can you talk to us a little bit about the logistics of how this works? Because we've seen exceptions made for other sports leagues in the past, at least half of the population of the CFL players are from the United States, if not not a greater percentage than 50, Rick. So, yeah. what arrangements can be made for those players, because they're going to have to come up, have a quarantine, and I know you just said there's uh, amazing amounts of testing kits uh, being made available to players, so presumably, as was the case with hockey, they'll be tested mm-hmm. every day, uh, but what? What? how are they going to do the quarantine? 14 days, 7 days, as was the case with hockey? What the arrangement to the best of your knowledge
1: yeah, the number i've heard is is 14 days uh, i'll give you the, the tiger cats for an example on on what they're doing so uh traditionally they would uh, house their training camp at mcmaster university which is you know a stone's throw away from the stadium really that they play in at sure, important yeah. field. uh and the, you know the players would stay in dormitories and you know they would get ready for the season uh in uh, in in may and in early june and then away they would go the way they're doing it at this time is they're all all the players, all the coaches are going to be huddled in a uh, yet-to-be-named uh, local hotel where they will basically have a floor or two where all the players will quarantine and will stay in advance of uh, their training camp. And they will oh, basically okay. be shuttled from that hotel to the stadium. So I would imagine that most teams are going to do the same thing, whatever their plans are or were before. They might keep those, but it's going to be in a very contained kind of shuttle or bubble format where they're not right you know out in the community doing all those kind of community events at least for the first few weeks I'm sure
0: OK, so then uh, so then we have uh, obviously then if we've got an August 5th start date, what is the start date for training camps if uh, here in British Columbia? Of course, the Lions typically we also go to a university campus. Rick, we just don't go to one a stone's throw away. We put everything on the buses and the trucks and drive up to Kamloops to, to Thompson Rivers University. That's where the Lions go for training camp. What's the start date for CFL training camps this year?
1: So training camp is July the 10th. So subtract okay. 14 days from that day. So we're talking late June. So really in about a week, uh, you know, players are going to start shuttling in. Obviously there's going to be a lot of Canadian players that are already here and they won't have sure. to quarantine because well, they've been here. But as you mentioned, there, there are a ton of American players and a lot of new guys who, who have no idea what the CFL is all about. They've heard about it. Maybe they've seen a game or they've seen some headlines or some highlights, but they've never played in the league and they're not quite sure how this all works out now throw the pandemic into the equation. That's a new wrench for all these American guys we are coming up to Canada. So it should be interesting to see how they kind of, you know, grow accustomed to uh, all, all this new stuff.
0: Yeah, it's a, a kind of a legal uh, a dodgy question for you here, Rick, but I'm, I'm curious because uh, I'm, I know fans are curious because, well, on the other side of the equation, a lot of us are looking forward to games because a lot of us have had our shots now and we're feeling pretty good about life. So in terms of the players and the players association, uh, have they made any agreements Will the CFL players, for example, by the time the regular season begins on August 5th, Rick, will every CFL player be fully vaccinated? I don't think they've made
1: that announcement yet, and I don't think that is going to be the case. Uh, The National Football League, actually, just a couple of days ago, there was a big brouhaha with a couple of players who have said, I'm never going to get vaccinated. I don't believe in that. So I don't think from a legal perspective, yeah, I don't think the league or even the Players Association can mandate that their members get vaccinated it would be no different okay. than any other workplace. You can't force a worker to get a vaccine if they don't want to. But in saying mm-hmm. that if they don't, you know, they're not going to have the same privileges as those who are fully vaccinated. They'll have to wear masks wherever they go. They may not be able to attend some community events. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be something to watch throughout the throughout the campaign.
0: Well, again, and, and uh, you're right. That's why I say it's kind of a shark-infested legal waters there. But nonetheless, yeah. you have to ask the question because uh, f- fans uh, are curious about these sorts of things. So I'm just poking around here looking for details. Uh, and in terms of the, the, the cutoff date for uh, American players to come to, to, uh, to Canada, to wherever part of the country they're headed. That, so if June 10th, or, sorry, July 10th is the start mm-hmm. of training camp, uh, they've got to be here 14 days ahead of that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we're talking in about a week. So um, yeah, we're going to have a flood of players coming on in. And I was just thinking, you know, from the vaccination perspective, you know, there's a public relations kind of or optics kind of, uh, you know, scenario with that, too, because, you know, Health Canada, public health officials, epidemiologists have all encouraged us, politicians have all encouraged us to get vaccines. And if there's a team that has, you know, a player or two, maybe even a star player who's against vaccines, that's going to be a news item and that might not be something that a team wants to deal with throughout the season. So that's something else to keep an eye on uh, this, uh, this coming season.
0: Well, that's true because, uh, and of course it's, uh, it sort of falls eventually into the category of lower body injury, doesn't it? They really don't want to talk much (laughs) about um, uh, details, uh, 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 those sorts of details. Uh, uh, You're right. And, but it's not going to stop uh, investigative reporters from poking around and asking questions. Is it Rick? That's right.
1: Yeah, hey, we got a job to do as well. We have to inform the public of what's going on and and I think the public has a right to know
0: these things. We're joined on the line from Hamilton, Ontario, the scene of the 2021 CFL Gray Cup game in December by Rick Zamperin, the former voice of the Hamilton Cats, now host of the fifth quarter on Chorus Radio Hamilton, CHML. Rick, we were talking about some of the revisions to the player uh, arrangements that have to be made to accommodate the changes for the CFL season, because we're going from no pre- we were no preseason games, and they're usually, where, well, they used to have up to four, but at least a couple so none of those, and 14 regular season games this year instead of 18. So, does that mean that the players will receive reduced compensation because they're playing fewer games?
1: Well, it's a prorated kind of deal in terms of you know how they get compensated. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a greatly reduced uh, package that they have right. uh, you know agreed to or accepted. So, you know, if you're a star player, you're still okay. If you're making the league minimum, obviously, you're going to take a little bit of a hit. But at the end of the day, you know, you're playing football again. You're playing the game that you love. You're, you know, extending your career. You're, you know, getting game film for, you know, maybe mm-hmm. that next contract or that next big contract. So I think at the end of the day, players are just happy to be back.
0: And and as as the, if they make the playoffs, if the team, if your team makes the playoffs, then the playoff bonuses will go forward as they always have. That part is untouched, right? Correct.
1: Yes. Yes, definitely. And you know, there was talk, and it hasn't really been confirmed uh, either way, of an expanded playoff format. Uh, you know, the league was saying, uh, you know maybe, or at least we were speculating that the league was intimating uh, a, a greatly reduced or greatly extended playoff format in which eight of the nine teams would make the postseason. But it appears that mm. it'll be the traditional six out of the nine, which I'm in favor of. I, you know, adding two more teams and, and kind of devaluing that regular season by almost allowing every team into the playoffs, I well, think yeah. wasn't the way to go. So yeah, having six of the nine, I think was, was the right call.
0: Yeah, I'm with you on that one too, Rick. Now, the scheduling is interesting because you're in Ontario and Ontario, uh, compared to, say, British Columbia in terms of the reopen so far mm-hmm. is behind. So, uh, the scheduling takes this into effect because as I understand it, when, when the CFL regular season begins on August 5th, there won't be any games played by the Ontario teams in Ontario all those teams will open on the road in provinces where there are expected to be fans in the stands Rick correct yes Uh, Alberta Manitoba
1: Saskatchewan have all said hey come on in come on down Uh, you're the next contestant on let's play CFL games again Uh, (laughs) those three provinces (laughs) those three provinces have said yes they are willing to have fans in the stands they'll have the proper protocols In place, And that's really going to be, you know, an eye opener, not only to fans, but league officials to to kind of, you know, almost guarantee that, yes, we can do this and do this safely. So uh, for the Tiger Cats, for example, the first three games are, you know, in Winnipeg for a Grey Cup uh, 2019 Grey Cup rematch. Then they go to Saskatchewan. Then they go to Montreal. uh, And then Uh their first home game is the Labor Day Classic on September 6th against the, the Argonauts. Um, you know i know that you know the bc alliance have said we'd love to have at least 5000 fans in attendance to start the season maybe we'll mm-hmm. get up to 50% at some time which is very encouraging but yeah you know those three provinces in the heart of canada are going to be hosting the first few weeks of the cfl season
0: well, and as I understand it, what what, their, what the league would like to see uh, is venues that can provide at least uh, thirty about a third of the fans' uh, capacity yeah. right from the get go, and and that's what you're expecting in Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan by early August. The fact that, uh, for example, McMahon Stadium in Calgary could could hold uh, one third uh, capacity of of the house, and that would be that'd be a decent crowd.
1: Yeah, at McMahon Stadium, I think the capacity is thirty three or
0: 36,000. So yeah, yeah. you're looking at around 11,000, 12,000
1: fans You know, in Hamilton, if that's the case. And again, a number really hasn't been spewed out by public health officials in Ontario or even the provincial government. Uh, but if you're looking at a third, you know, Tim Hortons Field, the, the maximum capacity is roughly twenty four, twenty five thousand. 25,000. So not a heck of a lot of fans, but at least it's a start. And for a, a gate-driven league like the CFL is... You know, the the more the merrier, because, you know, that that's really the lifeblood of how these players are going to get paid, how these coaches are going to get paid, how the league is going to survive. So they really need the fans in the stands and hopefully by, you know, playoff time, you know, late October, early November, certainly in the Grey Cup will have, uh, if not full capacity, very close to it.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that for a second, because it's really different football, professional football in Canada versus professional football in the United States. And uh, if you if you don't know the difference between the two, I think a lot of people assume that they're the same, which means that the NFL NFL players make a lot more money. uh, And and the league, Rick, is financed in great part by its arrangement with television networks, plural uh, for broadcast. And so they receive an enormous amount amount of money in broadcast royalties, where here in Canada, the league is much much more dependent on fans in the stands, actual people buying tickets and going to games. Yes, they do receive some money from television networks, but nowhere near the money they receive in the States, correct? Yeah, it's not even close. I mean, we're talking
1: David and Goliath, and, and maybe even more so. The National Football League is an absolute monolith of of all sports leagues. You, we're, we're talking European soccer, uh, you know, Formula One, uh, any of the other North American major professional sports, be it the NHL, NBA, or Major League Baseball. Uh, the NFL is on a planet of its own. We're talking multi-billion dollar deals. For example, Amazon signing a 10-year, $10 billion deal just to show games on Thursday nights. The NFL has a humongous amount of sponsorship contracts. Their TV deals are just astronomical. Case in point, you know, the CFL, uh, a a CFL team's salary cap is just over $5 million. Uh, Patrick Mahomes makes about $40 million. So he makes basically the same amount as every player in the Canadian
0: Football League. Let that sink in for a second. It's absolutely uh, on another level. Mm Mm-hmm. One guy makes as much as all the players in another uh, league. That is something else, isn't it? So, uh, now, uh, with the the CFL is now we have to also just sort of insert that all of this is still subject to the final approval of the public health people in Ottawa. And that has yet to be granted. Correct? Correct. Yes,
1: Public Health uh, Agency of Canada has um, received the CFL's, you know, return to play protocol plan, if I can put it that way, right. and I've eyeballed it, but no official approval has been made. And I, I think that was submitted, you know, a week or so ago. And, um, you know, Howard, Dr. Howard New, uh, the uh, deputy chief uh, medical officer of health, was quoted, I think, the other day saying they're still reviewing it. Uh, you know, they're trying to make sure that everything is going to be, uh, you know, done safely. Um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm very optimistic that the CFL has its ducks in a row in terms of the public safety aspect of it. Uh, our provincial medical officer of health has looked at it and, uh, you know, hasn't given approval either. Our our sports minister has, you know, had some nice things to say, but we're all waiting for that green light and that thumbs up. And, and until we get that, nothing can really proceed. So, you know, time is of the essence here with players coming sure. in and, you know, all those uh, quarantine uh, aspects uh, have to be followed. So uh, the, the clock is ticking louder than ever before.
0: Sure is. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Rick, I can't let you go without asking about a a, a subject that you and I actually had a conversation about here on The Morning Show a few months ago. That's the whole overtures from the CFL to the XFL. And that Mm -hmm. uh, XFL uh, component of the conversation, as we talk about returning to play for 2021, the whole XFL thing has magically disappeared, or has it? Well, it's certainly on the back pages, if you will. Um, it's 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 out there. It's in the back of people's
1: minds, but it's not front and center as it was before. And I think it won't be until this CFL season is done because the XFL doesn't even have a schedule, hasn't even really announced teams, where they're going to be based. Um, right. And the CFL all along has said, listen, we're, we're, we want to work with the XFL in terms of a uh, you know, a marketing plan or to, you know, an effort to quote, unquote, grow the game of football, what that looks like. Mm-hmm. We're not quite sure whether that's a merger at some point in time in the future. Um, that'll be interesting to see. But again, there are the, the XFL only exists as an entity at this point. There's nothing really tangible about it. So I'm sure they'll get off the ground and, uh, and we'll be watching. But right now it's a uh, CFL and, and that's all we're paying attention to right now. And rightfully well, so.
0: Well, no kidding, and and uh, but it, it is interesting how uh, it was uh, sort of front and center in terms of all the chatter, and now that there's yeah. the very distinct possibility of real football back on the field, suddenly all that other stuff is way uh, back on the back burner. Rick, uh, we'll, we'll know real soon, because as you pointed out, the deadline's coming up fast for the quarantine and getting U.S. players up here to Canada and uh, uh, isolated and quarantined in time to begin the training camp on July 10th, so it's... It's go, it's all coming down pretty fast, isn't it?
1: Can't wait for it to happen. Uh, you know, fingers crossed that uh, all all systems go at this point. And uh, by August fifth, they'll be kicking off, and it'll be great to see CFL back uh, on uh, on the map.
0: Well, as things uh, keep rolling out, we'll, we'll look forward to opportunities to tap into your expertise and experience on this topic, Rick. It's always a real treat to have you on the program. So let's hope that at least August 5th, we'll keep that weekend open uh, for a chat or a, a chat about the, the kickoff of the season that we both hope is going to happen and made be made official in just a few short days. Thanks for this this morning. Look forward to the next opportunity already.
1: You got it. My pleasure. Take care.
0: There's Rick Zamperin joining us from CHML Hamilton, that's Chorus Radio, where he is the host of the fifth quarter. Rick is, of course, the longtime play-by-play broadcaster of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Well, speculation about a fall post-pandemic election continues right across Canada as the vaccination rates increase across the country and voters get ready for a glimpse of life after COVID-19. And of course, the uh, federal government has done nothing but signal for the last several months that. They want that election sooner rather than later. They desperately want that majority. So what's the status? Were that to happen, for example, on Monday, how would Canadians vote? Well, we happen to have at least a, a snapshot of, of public opinion. Always a pleasure to welcome Mario Conseco, the head guy at Research Company, to the program with the latest poll results. Mario, good morning and happy Father's Day to you. Good morning, Sterling. Happy Father's Day to everybody today. A uh, special day for all of us. It is indeed. So now you've been out polling at the federal level. And uh, were, as I say, were the election to be held tomorrow, what would it look like? Would would Trudeau get the majority he so desperately wants?
2: Well, what we see is the Liberals definitely dominating in the areas where they usually do well. Atlantic Canada, Quebec, they have a wide lead over the block, so they could get some seats still way ahead in Ontario, the election essentially, if it's going to be defining where they get that majority government, would hinge on the results in B.C. And what is interesting Uh here is in the last election, the Conservatives did uh, significantly better than the Liberals and the NDP. But if the election were held tomorrow, the NDP would be in first place. So we would be in a very crucial situation for the Liberals. They usually see the federal Conservatives as their rivals here, but the NDP seems to be climbing the charts lately.
0: Interesting stuff. And just as a complete aside, because they weren't going to be much of a factor in the first place, I I, I doubt, anyway, you can confirm this, but it's been rather spectacular watching the Green Party literally implode before our eyes over the last several days with the defection of one of their three members, and then a a serious questioning, examination of the leadership capabilities of of the current leader, Uh, lots of pressure on her to step aside she doesn't even have a seat in the house Uh, the Green Party prospects I suspect weren't terrific in the first place Mario this isn't going to help him much is it it won't you know we were
2: in field uh, from June 12 to June 14 so a little bit uh, before we had all of the situations related to enemy Paul and the future of the Green Party and we already saw them uh, dropping at a lower level uh, four percent nationally only 6% in BC, there's going to be a difficulty trying to reconnect with those voters in a situation like the one we have now, especially when you have a leader who is not in the House of Commons. I think this is going Mm -hmm. to be very complicated for the Greens. Um, It really takes me back to the early stages of the Jagmeet Singh leadership, because when you're not in the House, it's very difficult to try to establish that relationship, to be somebody who is talking about the future of the country. When you're Mm. not in the House, this is definitely more complicated. And this is going to be um, what is happening with the Greens. If the election is held this fall, you're running from outside of the House of Commons, which is quite complicated
0: indeed it is so let's talk a little bit about why bc could be so important this time around you know it's really come a long way so i remember when i first moved out here and of course we we had all the the different rules and and typically when the uh, at eight o'clock when the polls would close here in british columbia that we would finally be allowed to watch the news and see the results which have been coming in across the country for hours uh, and we would the first headline we would hear is well british columbia has just joined us welcome uh, we have a majority government and we know yes, exactly. that not one british not one british Columbia vote had been counted so things have changed a whole lot so let's assume trudeau wins quebec that's a pretty safe bet and most of those quebec seats stay liberal uh and, and ontario is the big battleground trudeau's not going to win one seat in 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 saskatchewan he's not going to win one in alberta he may win one in manitoba so all of a sudden if he wants to claim to be the prime minister of a national government he desperately needs people from british columbia in in those seats doesn't he
2: he does and the area where this is going to be coming from uh i would say is the fraser valley um why am i saying this we saw in the 2020 election provincially that many seats that were uh, um, in in the hands of the BC Liberals in that election went to the BC NDP because of the way the COVID-19 pandemic was handled. Uh, You're looking at areas like Langley, uh, where people decided that they didn't want to vote for BC Liberals anymore. They voted for Mm -hmm. the BC NDP. I think we could have a similar situation here. Back in 2015, when Trudeau Mania 2 finally happened, We had some of those Fraser Valley seats moving from conservative to liberal, and then they went back to the conservatives in 2019. So if the election becomes a referendum on the COVID-19 pandemic, we could see some of those seats going back to the liberals from the conservatives. And if they can get four or five of those seats, they're definitely closer to the majority they
0: want. So, do you think actually that a large portion, uh, a portion rather, of the sentiment behind the vote will be the management of the pandemic? Regardless of what the platforms are, there will be an assessment of management capability? The reason I think this will happen is we've
2: seen it in the latest um, electoral processes that we've had provincially. You know, BC election at the time, we had few cases, we had a lot of people who were happy with the way. This pandemic has been handled. Similar situation that we had in Saskatchewan just a few weeks afterwards. Mm So uh, I think it's in the best interest of the Liberals to assemble this campaign around the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, The other issue for the Conservatives is we don't see... Uh, a level of identification with the current leader, Erin O'Toole, not even from conservative voters. I think one of the keys to the exercise here is to look at the numbers in the prairies. Yes, they are number one in Alberta, but when you ask them whether Erin O'Toole would be the best prime minister, he's tied with Justin Trudeau, so not a lot of identification with the leader right now, even among people who say they're voting conservative.
0: Mm -hmm. So in terms of leaders, uh, the personality of the leaders, the guy in the biggest uh, amount of difficulty or gaining the least traction appears to be Aaron O'Toole. Yes,
2: he's in third place when we ask people who would make the best prime minister of the country, 15%. He's been overtaken by Jagmeet Singh, who's now at 17, wide lead for Justin Trudeau at 37%. But this is definitely something that the conservatives will be thinking about. The campaign that we're heading into is going to be very different from the one that we saw provincially with social distancing, with not a lot of events where people could show up and essentially trying to do everything virtually. This will be different. You know, we're assuming that we'll be at a situation where most of our lives will return to the way they were before the COVID-19 pandemic. And then you can establish that connection by filling up town halls and talking to people directly and knocking on doors. They desperately need this because you cannot challenge a sitting government when you're at 15 percent on the best prime minister question
0: interesting stuff so uh, uh and I, I guess final question gee we're almost out of time do most people that you surveyed think there will definitely be an election sometime later this year is that well, again defi- yeah I, I think there is
2: definitely the actual prospect of that happening and you know if we go back to all the other elections that we've had with minority governments in this century you're always thinking that it's going to happen sooner rather than later now We can see a lot of people who ask the question about whether you want an election or not. This is completely out of our hands. Uh, We know that in the system that we have, um, the government calls the shots to their advantage. And right now, they're leading by eight points nationally. They have a wide lead on the uh, PM question. Uh, So, yes, they're thinking about it, and I think they will do it
0: hmm Interesting stuff. Always a pleasure, Mario, to, to take uh, the pulse of British Columbia and spend a few minutes with you on the radio on the weekend. We appreciate the, the update and uh, the, the fact that you've gotten up a little early to do it on, a, on Father's Day. Thanks very much. Great to have you on. It's my pleasure, Sterling. Thank you. You bet. There's Mario Canseco, the president of Research Company, and this poll is at their website as well. Sterling Fox with Chris Sims for the B.C. chapter of the Canadian Taxpayer Federation on the line. Chris, good morning. Thanks for joining us.
3: Good morning. Thanks for having us.
0: Well, it's great to have you back. You wrote a piece uh, that we picked out of the Prince George Citizen recently, pa- Politicians Using Taxpayer Dollars to Get Elected. We're talking about the voter subsidies here that began back in 2017. Take us back to, to those days, uh, back when Horgan and company were elected for the first time and why this uh, voter subsidy business came up.
3: Yes, so just a few days before that election actually happened, interestingly, John Horgan, who was then not yet premier, had told uh, news radio that he had no interest in using taxpayer dollars for political parties. But lo and behold, after the election, it happened anyway. So you're right, there's a per vote subsidy, which is as of right now, about $1.75 per vote. And there's also a huge reimbursement. After the election, a party gets 50% of their campaign expenses paid for by the taxpayer. So that's a huge chunk of change. So as of right now, between 2017 and our present day, we will have spent around $30 million on political campaigns as taxpayers. And we need to stress this isn't for elections B.C., this is not for the little pencils and the scrutineers badges and the little voting ballots this is for the BC Liberals the NDP the Green Party to pay for things like lawn signs and attack ads it's ah. for the parties yeah
0: okay so taxpayers are funding the lawn signs and the attack commercials on radio and television through this buck 75 per vote subsidy and so how does the money flow does it literally uh uh, each party gets uh uh, um monies taxpayer dollars chris based on the total number of votes they received uh, in total or in each riding
3: Uh, it's in total so it's a per vote subsidy and then again after any single election campaign the party simply applies through elections bc and bingo they get 50 percent of their campaign expenses paid back Whatever it was, they get fifty percent paid back, and we're paying for it.
0: So now the, the the parties will tell you this is all part of keeping uh, elections under control because this is all go. It all goes al- along the same line as banning donations and campaign contributions in excess of a certain specified amount by unions or individuals or companies. It's all part of keeping the the voting process uh, tamper proof, basically, is is what they're saying. That's their defense on this.
3: Yeah, that's the reasoning given, and we can understand that. So if folks want to get so-called big corporate money and big union money on either side of the spectrum most of the time out of politics, Mm -hmm. okay, Why not make it so that it is smaller donations, that it's knocked down to a certain amount, whatever they decide upon, so that you have to have personal smaller donations the way that it is right now at the federal level? We haven't had this sort of uh, money at the federal level. Uh, for the past three major elections, because Prime Minister Stephen Harper got rid of it. Um, and in fact, it was one of the reasons that triggered that big crisis where they were threatening to bring him down uh, back when Stephen Dion was leader of the, of the Liberal Party. Um, right. So they didn't want to let go of that money. And there's a reason why, because they don't need to get out there and earn it. If you're automatically getting it, no matter what your ideas are or what you do, why bother getting out there and appealing for the donations yourself?
0: Well, and it used to be that was that was how you got elected. You got uh, you signed up members at 10 bucks a head or whatever, yeah. and and that was that f- basically funded your war chest. You you got campaign contributions from people who were party members or sympathetic to the cause. And, and because now parties have this, at least here in BC, they have this voter subsidy. You're right. They don't have to get out there and hustle up the dough for themselves, do they?
3: That's exactly right, and there's something odd about that because if your ideas are so good and you truly believe in them so earnestly, you should mm-hmm. be able to bring people about onto your side. It doesn't have to be a lot of money. This can all start with passing the hat and five bucks, ten bucks, twenty bucks. Uh, there are parties that do that very successfully, and then nowadays, especially, you can start a GoFundMe type campaign online. You don't right. even need to leave your living room. So there's there's no reason for them to be taking this, and especially right now. With money being so tight after COVID, uh, it doesn't seem right for politicians to want to keep this money. And this is the other catch here, Sterling. They said, oh, it's just temporary. It'll automatically right. sunset. Now they're trying to extend it. Now they're trying to keep it. Color us surprised.
0: Of course. Uh, so yeah. now how, how are they going about keeping it? Are they actually going to write legislation that, uh, that uh, legitimizes this going forward indefinitely?
3: They're thinking about it. They just finished holding hearings uh, at a special committee in Victoria and we were they were hearing witnesses. Uh, the Taxpayers Federation was one of the witnesses hearing mm-hmm. pros and cons against extending this. We obviously came out very much against extending this and said, go raise your own money. And again, if folks want to keep it transparent and small donations, that's fine. Just don't sure. automatically force taxpayers to pay for it. Just to give folks an idea, $30 million, how much money is that? That would actually fund 50 new B.C. paramedics salaries for 10 years. Mm. That's a lot of money.
0: Yeah. What does the opposition say about this? The liberals obviously benefiting equally with the NDP on this. Are they squawking about it or are they kind of quietly looking the other way? (laughs)
3: Yeah, that would be column B there for sure. Uh, Initially, Mm -hmm. when this was first happening, there was some squawking, but that was about four years ago. And now most people are kind of muttering and looking at their shoes. And Mm -hmm. it's because there's, you know, it's so busy right now. People don't have time to pay attention to this. But if we allow this to become entrenched, we'll just wind up with more and more money going to political parties for partisan purposes. And that could have been money that we could either save or spend on more valuable things.
0: Mm-hmm. Like ambulances, for one, exactly. for one example.
3: Or yeah, long term care workers, or rent for people in downtown Vancouver, or give people tax relief. This is the equivalent of the income tax of the entire population for a year in Osoyuz. Like, it's a mm-hmm. lot of money.
0: <laughs> sure is. Uh, what's the website, Chris, please, before we go, uh, so folks can learn more about this?
3: Please go to taxpayer.com. You can sign our petition, and we will let politicians know.
0: Taxpayer.com. There's Chris Sims, BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it very much.
3: Thank you. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there.
0: Well, that includes me and I'll take it. Thank you very much, Chris. Pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. Dr. Horacio Bach is a professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and the Faculty of Medicine at UBC. Dr. Bach, good morning. Appreciate this very much. Happy Father's Day to you.
4: Thank you so much. Um, the same for the audience, and well, it's then, good. yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Well, it's good to have you back, Doctor Bach. It's uh, it's we very much appreciate it. I'm wondering what your take is now that you've had a chance to watch the the confusion coming from the most recent recommendations from NASI that have frustrated a lot of people who have received an AstraZeneca shot and were fully expecting to take a second one and get on with life. And all of a sudden, they've been told that they don't need to. Maybe they should shop around. Maybe they should have a second look at Moderna or Pfizer. And a lot of those people don't want to shop, Dr. Bach. They just want to get a shot and get on with things. What was your reaction to the messaging and the ensuing confusion? fusion
4: yes um yeah i agree with you it's a confusion and i'm not it's not clear for me why they decide to to do that because the astrazeneca is, is a great vaccine we have experience from uh uk they vaccinated most of the population and uh, uh, I think the problem is they try to avoid all these uh, blood clotting events that we know that can be produced. But uh, for the audience, once you are vaccinated with the first AstraZeneca vaccine and you need to, and you didn't have any symptoms or anything, you know, that uh, you, you needed uh, uh, medical assistance, the chances to get the blood clotting from the second shot is 1 in 600,000. It's
5: extremely
4: mm-hmm. low. And uh, even even for the first um, dose, the chances are one in one hundred thousand. So it's it's still very very low. And I just was revising data about the what is called anaphylactic shock. Means yes. that when you yeah, so when when you get a, a basically a, a allergic response to some of the ingredients, and that's one of the reasons that you have to stay fifteen minutes after the shot, to make sure that you don't have this reaction because they come very fast. And, yes. The so that's is, that's uh,
0: why you have to sit for 15 minutes after you get your thing and they put the little exactly. sticker in front of you and you don't move for 15 minutes.
4: Exactly, exactly. So that's the reason because this anaphylactic shock is coming in the first 15 minutes in most of the cases. So to get a, a, a just to give a kind of a, a, a flavor about the 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 numbers you are talking about one in 50,000 you can get that. So the rare events that we have about the blood clotting is extremely rare. And it, it's very confusing to me as well why they say that. They mentioned that the coming data from recent study show that the mix and matching is better. And for me, it's also something in doubt. Why? Because... That probably they are based in a study that came in Spain um, last month and Mm -hmm. saying that, you know, in 400 people, it was a better immune response and so on. But you cannot base a decision in a very small uh, group of, uh, you know, people that were in the study. And the point is we don't see any why they decide there is no reference about what they are based on. You know, a little more transparency because there's a recent study, but, you know, it's not and name what study they are uh, referring, And also uh, maybe something related to supplies, I don't know, um, but for me it's very, uh, 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 let's say, uh, surprising this, uh, this decision.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah and, and I've, I've seen other physicians interviewed on television uh saying basically the same thing and even doctors saying you know we would have, have appreciated a little advance notice in order to uh, be prepared ourselves to deal with our patients turning around and going now what do i do because of course the recommendation does include uh, wisely uh if if there is doubt please consult your family physician
4: exactly and, you know, so, and, 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 and another point is like a, the confusion for people, I, I perfectly understand. You say, oh, why they change now? Maybe yeah. the vaccine is not good. And I want to mention that it's not true. The vaccine is as good as Pfizer studies from UK from millions of people. They found that this defectivity is about seven, 85 to 90 percent, mm-hmm. very close to Pfizer. And even mix and matching in my uh, 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 point of view, I don't think it's a big deal. And the reason is the vaccination, all the vaccines are based on the same protein of the virus. It means that why you expect a better uh, uh, immune response when you use the same protein. The difference is the delivery system. But I think when they will be done in millions of people, we will find out that it's very, very similar. So I don't expect a huge difference in the protection. But something very important... Yeah. yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. Sorry. Nobody what you use. Um, all of them will avoid you to go to the hospital or have been the ICU based on the data that we know. So even if you are vaccinated with the AstraZeneca or Pfizer mix and match, the symptoms you will have are not as severe as compared if you are unvaccinated.
0: Mm-hmm. Are you pleased with the rate of vaccination in uh, British Columbia? We are now we've crossed a line, Doctor Bach, where we're now actually on a daily basis giving more people second shots than we are first. Is that is that a good thing from where you're sitting? Of course, that's fantastic because faster you immunize your your population,
4: is uh, we are very close or we are already in what we call the herd immunization. Yes, that is, you know, between 70 to 80 percent. And the idea is that the virus will have less opportunity to find a new host, mean a new person to infect. So that's the reason as long you have the two shots and, you know, two, three weeks after potentially you are uh, very well protected. I'm excluding the Delta variant because that's a different issue. But uh, uh, it looks like we don't uh, probably more than likely we are not going to end up in the hospital.
0: Yes, uh, just on the matter of variants, a- and this of course is concerning to a lot of people because uh, it seems that with a virus like this, this is your area of specialization, Dr. Bach not mine, but it seems that the 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 possibility the potential for basically endless numbers of variants, is wide open. Do you see this as a sort of an ongoing thing where the population eventually might reach a point where we're going to require an annual booster, uh, a, a COVID booster of some kind, every year or second year going forward?
4: Yeah, I, I, yeah, I do believe that. Uh, you are right, because uh, the variants, the, especially the Delta variant is the last one, is a, a very... Um, um, it's worrisome completely it's something that uh, we don't understand yet because you know studies requires a long time to 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 fee, to be finalized but mm-hmm. you know that people that they are uh, double vaccinated uh, they still can get the disease not in a very very uh, severity but uh, you can get that and definitely i, I will i I would expect to have by the end of this year or beginning of the year a booster for, against this variant. And something very important is that no matter how much you, decide, you continue with the variants you know, to, do, to develop new vaccines, the problem is as long as we don't vaccinate the, all the population in the world, always will we will have the possibility of a new variant that will pop right. from countries that you know, they don't have the possibility to vaccinate.
0: So that's that's where the likely source of variants going forward is going to be those places on the planet that don't have large percentages of their population immunized.
4: That is correct. I was talking even with a colleague in Kenya, and they told me that the problem they have, people are dying in the hospital, but they don't know if it's COVID-19 because they don't have the way to test. They don't have the oh. PCR. You know, they are uh, poor countries. Even in Haiti, the last I was reading, they didn't start vaccination at all because they don't have the money, and there is this Covax uh, funding that they are supposed to give, and now they are receiving for the first dose. All these countries, the moment they have the disease, is in incubator. You know, you don't know at some point will come a new variant that we expect at some point will come a new variant, and that will be uh, you know worse and worse at some point because uh, you know they are improving the the thing and evading is
0: death. So is it uh, is it wrong for someone here in BC Dr. Bach who has received his or her second shot of uh, whatever medication or vaccine they've taken Pfizer whatever uh, is it wrong for that individual to suddenly feel I'm immune I can go and do pretty much whatever I want? I'm. I'm after waiting the the two weeks for the take of the second shot. Are you home free?
4: Um, it's a great question. It's very hard to answer. Um, I think that the, the the you know the the guidelines that will come is uh, we uh, the, the 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 public health is monitoring all the uh, all the stuff all the time. You know, see mm-hmm. what's happening. in UK they have a double. A vaccination and they were ready to open and then it was a spike in the number of the Delta variants and they said wait wait wait, wait. we will wait another month because mm-hmm. we don't know yet you know this virus is very uh, complicated and um, even if you have the two vaccine and you get in I mean you get the virus my feeling is that probably you can transmit this virus even if you are vaccinated or you are uh-huh. asymptomatic you can transmit probably in the first first day or second day because at the moment the virus will start to if, if it's able to infect one cell and start to multiply so the antibodies that you have will will, uh, will attack the, the virus and will neutralize but that will take one or two days I guess uh-huh. but the yeah, so because, you know, uh, sometimes we have antibodies in the part of the mucous, what we call, that is, you know, in between the cells. But um, if you need for a long term, so the body in order to react and make antibodies or the memory cells, what we call, may take a little long. It's not something that, you know, instantaneously reacting. So that's the reason that, you know, if everyone in the family is vaccinated, a double vaccine and everything okay, I guess it's Okay. But uh, when talking about the circle of the friends, it uh, have to be still very careful. It's not something right. that to say, okay, we are free, let's go and um, have the party. So um need to take some uh, um, uh, guidelines from the public health for sure.
0: Right. And, and, and otherwise you're, you would, you would only be able to be uh, feeling as free and as immune as you could, as you might want to feel as if everyone else was fully vaccinated, exactly. then you could, but until then, until we're all fully vaccinated, you still have to be careful. Most, exactly. most importantly, just be careful. Right.
4: And, Dr. and also, you know,
0: yeah. Also, Sorry, also,
4: exactly. Yeah. Also, people that they are coming, you know, that they, we have all the time, a, a friends or family members that are coming from other provinces or other a, 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 a countries, and mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know if they're going to leave at some point in the quarantine, but that's very important to control potential newcomers. You know, that may bring the the virus that they don't know, and you know, you are in your house, you are not protected, and you may have that, but even if you have we don't expect severity in the conditions
0: it's a real pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program i've been a fan for years she is the author of a book called not on my watch how a renegade whale biologist took on governments and industry to save wild salmon by alexandra morton one of british columbia's most esteemed marine biologists Ms. morton alexandra good morning and welcome to the program
6: good morning we're we're sitting here in thick fog so we don't have the heat yet
0: <laughs> oh you're up, now you're on the northern tip up on the northern end of vancouver island so uh, you haven't got any you haven't got the hot stuff yet it's it's sunny and quite warm around these parts i must tell you
6: oh i see well we're looking forward to that
0: so now let's talk about this book it's been out for a few months how's it doing for you by the way just in terms of the, the raw book sale side of things
6: Uh, It's been doing very well. It was on the bestsellers list for five weeks, and now the sales are steady. Um, It's been, I'm I'm amazed at how many people are interested in this uh, political thriller (laughs) because, um, well, I guess, I mean, I'm not that surprised because salmon are so important to Canadians, to British Columbians, and Mm. this is a real uh, story about, what happened, the betrayals that went on, the hope that there still is, and, uh, and what worked to actually try to protect them.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about your story too, because Alex, it, it does dovetail completely into the saga of the salmon and uh, the, the story uh, here on, on the coast. You came up from California to BC in the late 70s to study orcas, correct?
6: Yes, I was actually looking for a particular family of northern resident orca because I was working with one of their members that was being held in a tank in Los Angeles, and the whales actually led me into the Broughton Archipelago where I found Echo Bay, and I set up there in 1984 with my husband and our our baby and began a long-term study of the sounds of orca. And then the salmon farming industry moved in. So this was a tiny community of about 200 people with a one-room school. And we were always very keen for new families to move in. And so I was quite welcoming of the industry. But in the end, it squashed the life out of us. And the impact has been catastrophic on wild salmon and the whales themselves.
0: So, uh, how long did it take? Uh, and what about specifically, what community? What is this little one horse town that you're talking about so we can <laughs> put a name on it?
6: It's called Echo Bay.
0: Okay, sure. All right. So you're up there in Echo Bay, you're monitoring uh, whales, studying whales and this particular uh, resident family, uh, then the fish farming industry starts to move in and with complete with their employees who are f- uh, fleshing out the population a little bit, making perhaps a little more interesting place to live on a personal basis. But then what they're doing in the water starts to affect your study of the orcas. How long did it take for the actual installation of the fish farms, Alex, to impact the whales?
6: Um, well, they came in in about 1988, and the impact began in 1995 when they played acoustic harassment devices uh, to try to get rid of the seals, and and the whales just couldn't tolerate it. It was uh, pain-inducing. But, you know, the fishermen noticed before me that this thing was a problem, and they actually came to me and asked me to write to to DFO about the fact they were putting these farms in all the wrong places. They were putting right. them where the the salmon, the rock cod, and the prawns uh, were particularly abundant. And so I began writing letters. And I, I really thought my involvement was just going to be a single letter. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> now I've gone on to you know file lawsuits. I've never lost. I went to Norway, spoke at the AGMs. But the other thing I did was I, uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, I got the conversations that senior DFO management was having about this industry. And what I can see now is that they created a monster. You know, instead of forcing the industry to meet the expectations of Canadians, they just lowered the bar every single time. And so in the book, I reveal these conversations and the the collusion and the cover-ups of the impacts of their viruses and their sea lice. And, uh, you know, it's just been an extraordinary fight. Um, And now, finally, there's some hope because we have a Minister of Fisheries who uh, actually seems to get it, which to Mm -hmm. me is shocking to actually, you know, be in agreement with, with my Minister of Fisheries.
0: Yeah. Uh, A couple of things there. Uh, First of all, um, and most British Columbians can recall this, the Mulroney era isn't that far gone. But this is (laughs) the same era, the same rather Department of Fisheries and Oceans, the DFO, that during the Mulroney era actually managed the cod fishery in eastern Canada right out of existence. So we 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 learned watching that on the other side of the country that perhaps this ministry wasn't the most together department in the government of Canada. So when we when our turn came and it came to to, to the the matter of fish farms, uh I think even though we had, we were it was this brand new stuff, Alex. It was all fish farms. What are fish farms? Yeah. Uh, but as all of this came uh, came to be, uh, I I don't think uh, uh, the expectation level locally on on the part of DFO was very high, given what we've seen them already do.
6: Well, I honestly would like to know how this whole thing got started, because as I write in my book, the first thing that the province did was they made it illegal for my community to tie our floating houses to the shore. And they were handing these these areas, these tenures, out to the salmon farming industry. So on the one hand, they were saying, this is going to be good for you. <laughs> and then they took away our right to live there.
5: Mm. And
6: it just went downhill from there. So I honestly don't know what the Department of Fisheries and Oceans is about other than at the moment, uh, smoothing the way for industries that are causing huge damage, whether it's, you know, mining or logging or fish farms.
0: Now, well, you should. In, sorry, Alex, in, but you should also know that during the time of development of fish farms, when this this brand new industry came to British Columbia, uh, the government of Canada was so keen to have them here that they were very generous with their tax credits and grants. You could invest as a BC person in a local fish farming operation and receive a significant tax credit. The government wasn't giving them money, but they were uh, they were uh, allowing credits for people who were investing. Investing them in them, and therefore giving them money, so the government was on side with the notion right from the get go.
6: I did not know that. That's I, it's rare that something uh, comes up that I didn't know about. That's that's uh, quite extraordinary. Well, do you know our Canadian pension plan is one of the biggest investors in Maui, the big fish farm company? And I don't understand that because the December eighteenth decision by the minister has uh, cut back Maui by 30%, their production by 30% by Mm -hmm. uh, saying they couldn't restock 19 salmon farms on the Fraser-Sakai migration route. So I don't know why they would risk our Canadian pension plan investing on an industry that they are trying to get back under control. Now, this is the extraordinary thing that's going on because senior management in DFO is just... Covering up the impact of viruses, the where they came from, the impact of sea life—it's it, it's shameful, and, uh-huh. and nobody believes them anymore, including it would appear our minister. And so she's in a situation where she does not have senior staff to back her up, um, but she has she's looked into the issue and she is dealing with it now. Um, First Nations are a big part of this role. Um, but it's very difficult for them because these companies are extremely aggressive. They have contracts with them, and, and I can see that the nations that uh, whose territory includes the big salmon rivers, they are much more productive of wild salmon than nations that that are simply on the pathway of, of these these big salmon runs. So it, it's going to be a chaotic few years, and and I do really feel for um, the the workers in the industry. Absolutely mm. do, but. As a society, can, can we really destroy for all time a part of our world as important as wild salmon? You know, I, I just don't think we morally can do that for future generations.
0: Does the province have a role here? I know the, the Ministry of the, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans is entirely federal. It's a, it's a federal jurisdiction, but it is, after all, here in British Columbia. Does Victoria have a role to play, Alex? And if so, what is it?
6: Yes, they do. They are the landlords, uh, so they issue the tenures that give the, uh, each farm the right to drop anchors over an area of the seafloor, um, and the province was, was really excellent when it came to the Broughton Archipelago First Nations, when they decided they did not want the farms here anymore because their wild salmon stocks had collapsed, which which I was predicting mm-hmm. for many years, since at least 2020. Um, or sorry, at least since uh, 2001. And, uh, but now the province has turned around and, and they're much more resistant. And I, I suspect it has to do with the steelworkers union because they represent the salmon farmers and they're very powerful. Mm -hmm. And I know when I ran for MLA, the Steelworkers Union revealed itself as being quite aggressive against me. And I I was surprised. And when I looked into it, I was like, oh, okay, so you guys represent the fish farmers and you you think you're protecting these these guys by bullying the uh, premier of our province. But really, if the Steelworkers Union wants to protect their workers, they should be all about closed containment because that's where that is where the industry is going everywhere in the world. Except here.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: And we've got these mayors in these little towns that are just, you know, writing letters with, with the industry and complaining. And nobody can see that this thing is doomed. These fish are dying of lice, of disease, of algae blooms, of, of growing amounts of jellyfish. You know they—they've got these huge ships now. They're sucking the fish in. They're—they're they're pouring hydrogen peroxide over them, like, yeah. again and again. This is not a viable industry uh, in the water. And right. yeah. <laughs>
0: In conversation with marine biologist Alexandra Morton, and we're talking about fish farms and the wild salmon, uh, we had uh, Gideon Mordecai from UBC on Alex a couple of weeks ago talking about uh, his research uh, into uh, viruses in wild salmon population, and he's found one called PRV that uh, is, is very worrisome. Tell us what you know about Gideon's research.
6: Well, <clears throat> so I published. <clears throat> sorry, so I published on PRV first in 2013, and mm-hmm. uh, w- when I first found it, I sent samples, actually, of farm salmon from Superstore to Norway to the University of Bergen, and they said, "Okay, th- yeah, this is our virus." Now, nobody believed me. Nobody wanted to to accept that the industry had accidentally
0: imported a dangerous imported virus. no less. Yeah, exactly.
6: But Gideon went much further. He went and tracked down all the genetic sequence that has ever been produced on this virus from Chile, Norway, Scotland, everywhere, British Columbia, Eastern Canada. And his expertise is really as a, a sleuth to figure out where all these strains came from and how mm-hmm. long they've been separated from their, their, their parental populations, if you can call them that. The, the viruses have clocks on them. And you can measure how long they have been in a new environment, and so Gideon's work is extremely thorough. Uh, and, and it says that this virus has been imported from Norway. Now, yes. in Atlantic salmon, it gets into the red blood cells and it uses those cells to reproduce and it leaks out and it causes inflammation. But in Chinook salmon, the only Pacific salmon that has been really studied with this virus, um, it gets into the red blood cells and the red blood cells don't let it leak out they simply fill up and they burst en masse, creating a, 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 a wa- you know The fish is awash with hemoglobin, overwhelms the liver, turns the fish yellow. And, of course, they have less red blood cells to do things like swim up rivers and catch food and escape from killer whales.
5: Mm. And
6: it's very contagious. Um, a paper that I published in 2017 showed that uh, there's more fish, more wild fish infected with this virus near salmon farms, and yet government is denying this uh, because it's against the law to put a a fish infected with a quote-unquote disease agent into a fish farm from the freshwater hatcheries. And so uh, they've been denying this because uh, they're so infected with this virus and it's spreading. Mm -hmm. So I'm enormously grateful to Gideon because it's rare that a scientist is brave enough to go up against this industry, and yet that is what he is doing, and you know the slander that it that they're generating to try to uh, dispute his findings is is ridiculous they they just they're just making it up as they go along, and they would do themselves a lot of good by saying, Okay, okay, yeah <laughs> we got a problem here, and here's what we're gonna do we're gonna we're going work to get our farms onto land into closed containment where we can grow Um uh, that would be the good thing to do, but they just, they refuse.
0: Let's talk about a court case that's uh, come down quite recently. A decision here uh, involving uh, some fish farms uh, near Campbell River on, uh, off Discovery Island. Uh, now there were a few farms there that uh, have been uh, compelled to vacate. Uh, they asked the courts for permission to stick around and do another cycle of growth before vacating. The court said essentially, no, you're on, you have a schedule, stick to it. Am I interpreting the decision correctly?
6: Uh, Oh, my gosh. This has gotten so confusing. So the minister said you can't put any more fish into the Discovery Island. This affected 19 salmon farms from all three of the Norwegian operators that run the salmon farms in this province. And so one of the companies came back and sued the minister, and the judge actually said, okay, the minister has to make the decision again. And then another company, SERMAC, jumped up. They didn't go to court. They just jumped up and they reapplied for two sites. And the minister just denied those. Uh, and now there's a larger judicial review, and the First Nations are not allowed to be part of that. Mm. So they are appealing that decision because this is all about them. Yeah. But the, the problem that the industry has is they have fish in other farms that are getting too big, and they're going to cross their legal biomass limit unless they can move those fish as soon as possible into these farms in the Discovery Islands. Ah, The problem with putting farms in the Discovery Islands is that all the Fraser River fish, whether they're sockeye, steelhead, chinook, go through that area. Mm -hmm. And I've been studying those fish, that area, since 2005. And this year, because so many of the farms were already empty, And the minister has not let them put fish back in. The fish look beautiful. The juvenile wild salmon swimming through this amazing area are fat and glossy and gorgeous. Mm. They're not covered with sea lice. Their eyes are clear. They're not all cloudy. The, the, The impact of removing the farms is astonishing. But the salmon farming industry, they only know one thing, and that is to be aggressive. And so, you know, we're watching them absolutely destroy themselves because they won't adapt, they won't accept the damage that they have done. And um, so I don't know where this is going to end up. I mean, there are so many court cases right now about mm-hmm. just this single area. Meanwhile, all the other nations are watching. And one year from now, all of the federal licenses for this industry expire everywhere's on the coast. Right. And the the minister's going to have to consult with all the First Nations. And what the industry keeps saying in court is, "Hey, we didn't know. We didn't know you wanted us to go. We we didn't have enough time to figure this out." Mm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know. You guys have just been deaf and blind. Um, they thought that nobody would catch them at this. And really, my advice to the salmon farming industry is you should get up and run. Because viruses have fingerprints with clocks on them, and people are now really looking at your business. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and the impact of this industry is just catastrophic. And these viruses are spreading up into the Fraser, they're up in the Skeena, and it's Norwegian. So how did that get there? Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Have to leave it there, Alex. I'm grateful for your time. Let me remind our listeners of your most recent book, Not on My Watch, How a Renegade Whale Biologist Took on Governments and Industry to Save Wild Salmon. Alexandra Morton, marine biologist extraordinaire. Thank you so much for being with us today.
6: Thank you so much, and happy Father's Day to everybody.
0: And our guest this time around here to talk a little hockey on a Sunday morning is Rob Williams, the sports editor of Vancouver's Daily Hive. Rob, good morning. Happy Father's Day. Thanks, Sterling. Uh, same to you. Thank you very much. Uh, you and I have talked about this in in, in the recent past. Uh, the quality of hockey that we're watching on our tubes every night uh, during these entire playoffs is significantly higher than typical playoff hockey. I'm thinking, Rob, this is one of the best playoff rounds I've ever seen. Do you agree?
7: You know what? It's been a lot of fun. I, I think. Um I think for me, just the the, having fans back in the building has just added so much. Even if you know, even for watching on television, is just so so significant. Um, Particularly with the New York Islanders, their fans are just going out of their minds. But you know, even even the Montreal Canadiens, you know, uh, you know, thirty five hundred fans, it feels like more uh there for sure um and and yeah it's it's it, you know the surprises have been off the charts so far um you know with Montreal having the 2-1 series lead with uh the New York Islanders you know really standing up to the to the defending champs the Lightning. they are yeah. their 2-2 in their series right now so yeah I, I don't know what's going to happen next and, and it's been a lot of fun
0: Yeah, and some of the other series leading up to this, you know, the uh, Colorado Golden Knight series was epic. I mean, there have just been some great battles all along, hugely entertaining. It's interesting, you know, Rob, they did a poll with the Players Association. They do it at the end of every season. They just ask the players among themselves, what do you think about this, that, and the other thing? And, you know, uh, uh, the players themselves, almost 69% of them say, we don't want to see this division configuration go forward we've got the the north the canadian division and 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 so on Uh, the players themselves say to a vast majority of them say no we'd rather go back to the way it was do you expect it will rob
7: yeah you know the, the funny thing about that poll was that the players were Uh, not in favor of the divisional format, but they were in favor of this, like, series format, like where you play the same team multiple times. That's Um, right. But, of course, you know, which you can understand, they'd like to go to a city and just stay there for a few days. But at the same time, it's kind of nonsensical because uh, the only way you can get that format is by having this divisional format, right? Because you're not playing every team, you know, Twelve times a season in, in the under the old format i I expect it will will go back to exactly how it was uh, right. pre pandemic The only thing I could maybe see changing is maybe they you know maybe put some provision in there that you get an extra gain against you know a handful of, of rivals from the other from the other conference maybe you know maybe try to find a way for the Canucks and Leafs play an extra game a year, that sort of thing. But otherwise, I don't, I don't see it changing. Um, and quite, quite frankly, it's, it's, you know, it's going to be great to go back to how it was. I, I think we, we've seen the NHL uh, try to go like right after the um, lockout loss season in two thousand four five. They, you know, they they tried not to such a drastic change, but they did make it such that not every team visited uh, your arena every year. That's um, right. And there were even teams that you didn't play at all in, in mm-hmm. a season. So and I think that was universally hated by fans. So, yep. you know, you get Sydney Crosby visiting Vancouver just once every three years. People didn't like it. So I, I think that we're going to go back to the way it was and uh, and it's going to be great.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, and the Canucks, and when we're back in our own division, the Canucks do have that advantage. They'll go down to Southern California and they'll play the Sharks, the, uh, the, the Kings, and the Ducks all on the same road trip. And once you get to L.A., you know, you can stay at the same hotel and play a couple of games. And, and so we have that advantage in our circuit. And, of course, we get the Kraken. And if they're anything like Vegas turns out to be, that's going to be a handful right from game one, isn't it, Rob?
7: Yeah, you know, I'm really looking forward to that. And I hope that, uh, you know, hopefully the border is open by that time uh, because I'm sure there'll just be a a flow of Canucks fans that will be invading Seattle for for that, especially for the first game in in Seattle that the Canucks play. That'll be a ton of fun. And, yeah, I I agree. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see, like, how good are they going to be? Like, this is really going to show, you know, Was Vegas handed a team, or did they really make the right, you know, push the right buttons and make the right moves to construct a Stanley Cup contender right out of the gates? Uh, I I think it's a a bit of both. I do too. Um, And I also think some teams around the league may have learned their lesson a little bit and and might be more prepared um, this time around than they were the first time um, when they were exposing really good players uh, to Vegas.
0: Yeah, well, of course, uh, Seattle Kraken has that KG veteran Ron Francis as their general manager, who's as capable as George McPhee was when he was running Vegas and getting them into the game. So I would think that uh, uh, the Kraken, the new Seattle team, is going to be pretty dangerous, Rob, right from the get-go. Uh, and they have—they're almost hired a coach. I, I understand that they're down to a, a short list of maybe two or three uh, candidates, and will be likely announcing a coach uh, ch- uh, selection in the next day or two. as that what you're hearing as well
7: yeah i heard that report as well uh looks like rick talk is the name that's been most bandied about of course he's an yep. ex uh ex Pittsburgh penguin teammate of uh, ron francis from their playing mm-hmm. days they won stanley cups together uh there was a couple other names uh tony granado uh whose uh, sister tammy granado of course works as a scout in the organization right and uh joe sacco the former uh colorado uh head coach as well those are the names that i heard in the report uh but yeah it's going to be it's going to be very very interesting of course you know for a little, for a while people thought that Travis Green might be the next uh, head coach of the, of the Kraken but uh of course he resigned with the Canucks.
0: Yeah, uh, back to the uh, the current series, the game that's on at five o'clock this afternoon from Montreal's Bell Center. And you're right, there will be thirty five hundred. Did you see the uh, the interview? It was in the previous round when they only had twenty five hundred fans, and I think it was against the Leafs. And they had the the, and of course, the, there are more fans outside hanging around outside the arena than are allowed inside. And they so they were doing streeter interviews with fans. Just they weren't going to the game, but they talked to a couple the guys who were and these these guys very young guys all jacked up for the big game one of them says uh, in, a, in a beautiful east montreal accent uh, twenty-five hundred. We're going to sound like twenty-five thousand. I swear to God. And he did. <laughs> they went in and they just made a heck of a racket. So they add another thousand tonight, and it will be as noisy as thirty-five hundred people can ever be imagined to be cheering on the Montreal Canadiens, who on paper, Rob, should have been uh, this. This should be game four and gone. Uh, if you if you believe the the uh, the analytics of it all and yet here they are ahead in the series who'd have thunk it
7: yeah you know what funny enough we've got a writer in um in montreal today uh adam lascaris uh and he is going to be interviewing the uh said uh you know i swear to god he's the i swear to god guy uh oh, he's so great he's going, be, uh, he's going to be chatting with him today so that's going to be a fun story coming up on our site uh pretty soon, you know probably the next day or two uh, but yeah, no. I mean, the, the Montreal's undefeated since since that comment, and since they've been allowed to have fans back. They won the one game with fans and against the Leafs. They swept the Jets, and they and they won their first home game against Vegas. So that's right. Uh, yeah, I, I and I think it makes a tangible tangible difference. It, you know, it's it just having just that extra extra boost, and I think there's. Uh, you know, real emotion that comes with uh, going so long without having fans in the stands and then just mm-hmm. having having that crowd there. And, and you know, I, I think in many ways he was, uh, you know, that comment was, uh, you know, a great predictor because, you know, like you can see in the, in the streets of Montreal right now, they're, they're just people are losing their minds after oh, yeah. <laughs> after every game. Uh, making everybody a little bit uncomfortable, uh, COVID wise, I think, but, um, but you can appreciate the passion. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, there's, there's no fans, uh, that have a better reputation, I think, for their passion than, than
0: Montreal. Sterling Fox with you, joined by Rob Williams, sports editor for the Daily Hive. Uh, talk a little hockey, of course, on the morning of a mini heat wave with temperatures expected to exceed 30 in the Fraser Valley this afternoon and darn close to it at English Bay. Rob, you put, you put out a column a, a, a little while ago talking about the 10 names being considered by the Canucks organization to assign to the former Utica Comets, which will be playing out of the uh, Abbotsford uh, Center. Eighty-five hundred fans for hockey. There, you point out in the column, uh, and the the option is they can either be called the Abbotsford something or the Fraser Valley something. Right?
7: That's right. Yeah. The uh, I, I think most people would kind of assume that they just be called Abbotsford. Um, but they could go, you know, the Fraser Valley bandits, the uh, professional basketball team, they, they opted to go with Fraser Valley. Right. Personally, right. I think I like, I like Abbotsford myself. I don't know. I, I I'm not from the Fraser Valley, so I don't know if, if that's, uh, you know, if there's a rivalry, if that'll maybe hurt their chances of drawing people from Chilliwack or Langley and Surrey or anything like that. Hmm. But, uh, it does, you know, Fraser Valley's a bit of a mouthful for me, I think, but, um, okay. Uh, I, I, that's that's what I would go with. But I, I don't our, know. our
0: producer, our producer Ben Dooley likes uh, Fraser Valley Pilots. He says it pays tribute to the air show. It's very inclusive of that whole Fraser Valley. Again, drawing all those people in from those small communities. I personally favor the Abbotsford Avengers. I like that. But you know what, Rob? I don't think there's anything wrong with Canucks either. Uh, what do you think's going to win? Yeah, it's interesting.
7: I I, I hadn't really. <sighs> I, I don't think they're going to go with Canucks. I, I kind of, part of me wonders if they just added a few extra names on this uh, list to kind of throw the everyone off the scent. So they didn't, you know, it, it, we didn't, uh, you know, there would be a bit more of a surprise when they, when they eventually pick the name, but you know, they are looking for input, I guess. So um, I don't know. I, I, I kind of like, Falcons was one that kind of uh, jumped out to me. You could maybe make that to you know have some fun with the mascot that way, and, right. and you know, and that would also the, work
0: with either uh, Falcons would work either with Abbotsford or Fraser Valley.
7: Yeah, exactly. I, I, I like Abbotsford Falcons. I think works. I think the other okay. one, Abbotsford Arrows, was one that jumped out to me uh, when when everyone was throwing out their their ideas as well, and that one really gets it, you know you can have the the you know airplane. Uh, Element, which is of course uh you know fits nicely with Abbotsford. with Abbotsford, um, absolutely yeah, but that's, that those are the ones I, I was I was drawn to, of course, you know golden Eagles is kind of like that one's sort of like the sneaky like aquilini uh, you know you know they've got some businesses they've got a golf course named Golden Eagle, you know, so thats sort of I think that might ah. put us the wrong taste in people's mouths i I think they'd be better off going with one that's that's clear from being uh you know, some kind of sponsored name in any way.
0: Let me take a second here and run down the potential list of 10 names the Canucks are circulating among their fans, particularly, as Rob pointed out in his column, uh, to people who made deposits for tickets uh, priority to see these new this new team playing out of the uh, Abbotsford Center. Uh, and here are the names. Aces, Arrows, Rob likes that one, Avengers, Aviators, Canucks, Golden Eagles, Pilots, Millionaires, there's one for the old folks, Sockey's, and the last one on the list is Falcons, and they ask that you can either put Abbotsford in front of any one of those names or Fraser Valley in front of any one of those names. Uh, and they, uh, and it's interesting the comment section in the paper uh, uh, below your column, <laughs> people didn't like too many of those names. It had a whole lot more to suggest when are they going to make the announcement? Cause I guess they want to start selling tickets pretty soon, Rob. Yeah. I mean, this is,
7: you know, I, I think we're going to be seeing, uh, Lots of movement on this uh, very, very soon. Uh, I know the the Canucks themselves. I mean, the Canucks themselves had laid off uh, uh, a huge amount of staff in the neighborhood about seventy five percent of their staff during the pandemic. Right. Uh, right on, they're staff, now in yeah. the process that, that they're going to They're hiring people back now. Uh, in preparation for being able to welcome fans back. So you know they've got to hire people (laughs) to sell tickets and do all these things, but they've also got to build out uh, a staff in Abbotsford as well. So I don't know how far along they are in in terms of that or if that's going to fall on uh, the staff over at Rogers Arena or not. Um, Mm. So they've got to make a lot of decisions. They need a name, they need tickets, they need to (laughs) sell this quickly. Uh, because the, you know the game started in October, so that's right. You know, it, it's happening really, really fast. You know they've got less than four months to go here, and they don't have much tangible uh, in the way of um, in the way of much. We don't know very much at all. We know that they're going to play uh, in Abbotsford, and and we know what league they're in, and we, we think we know what players will probably be in the lineup. But but that's about it. It's, there's not much else.
0: That's it. Well, uh, we're almost out of time here, Rob, and I'm grateful for yours on a Sunday morning. Uh, it's going to be fun to see how well, what the final choice is. And the final question to you is, for anyone listening who has a preference, can they vote somewhere? Where can they go?
7: No. So, I mean, not that I know of yet. This was a an email sent out, not even to connect season ticket holders. This was an email sent out to everyone that had. had Put a deposit, made a deposit, right, yeah. Exactly, a deposit for, for tickets uh, in Abbotsford. So only the people that had really kind of put their money where their mouths were for their, um, their interest in the Abbotsford team.
0: Okay, well, here's what I would do. If I'm a Canucks fan and I, I have a preference for the new team in Abbotsford, I would email that preference to the Vancouver Canucks and let them take it from there. Rob Williams, thank you for this. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Happy Father's Day to you. The pleasure is online. Thank you. There's Rob Williams, sports editor, The Daily Hive. So it's a happy welcome back, Rainbow Robert. Good morning to you.
3: Great to be with you. Happy Sunday, Sterling.
0: Thanks very much, Rainbow. Now we talked about, I guess maybe a month, six weeks or so ago, about the upcoming Jazz Festival, and you know I'm a fan, so I was into it then, and even more so now because because we've had a change of uh of restrictions uh, you have been able to change slightly to modify to the positive some of the uh aspects of the jazz festival so we've got some in-person live music to talk about this morning the best possible news rainbow give us some details please
3: Well, we couldn't be more excited to have found out through the provincial health orders that the TV Vancouver International Jazz Festival that runs June 25 through July 4 this year will be permitted to have some small live audiences at about 39 of our shows.
0: That's fantastic. And will there be specific venues that will have these uh, uh, shows? I believe there are two, right?
3: Um, Actually, so we um, are going to be hosting very small uh, live audiences safely at Performance Works on Granville Mm -hmm. Island each night at 8 p.m. We also have live audiences at Frankie's Jazz Club and the Ironworks series, which happens at 9 p.m. each night, which features uh, creative and improvised music, will also be hosting live audiences.
0: Interesting. You know that last night uh, the Vancouver Symphony had its first concert in over a year at the Orpheum Theater and they played to, wait for it, 50 people. <laughs>
6: this so, is you our know, new reality, Sterling. That's isn't right. It?
0: And, you, you, and you know already how happy each and every player on that stage was last night to be finally in front of anybody. So Absolutely. It, little by little, baby steps right now, R- Rainbow, right?
3: A hundred percent. And there really is, you touched upon something really important. There really is no substitute uh, for the chemistry between artists and live audiences. Mm -hmm. And for artists who have been adapting and playing online and reaching people in uh, new ways through technology to come back to our humanity and to be in a room together to experience um, everything about what music can do for us, to uplift us and to uh, be a great cause for celebration.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm looking at some of the background material here for the international jazz festival, and it says re- regarding performance works, audiences of 40 will be uh, at performance works for free daytime shows at 2:30, and the ticketed evening shows. Those are the eight o'clock shows that you talk about. So, uh, th- at least that's going there'll be audience turnover between shows one and two, and it's the same uh, idea at performance works as well. There's more than one performance per day, yes.
3: Absolutely. So we actually have a host of live performances that are happening where small audiences will be permitted to RSVP to mm-hmm. attend in person. And I encourage people to check out uh, the full program on coastaljazz.ca. Pe- the response has been overwhelming. Um, I believe there are a few spots left, perhaps for a few of the concerts, but we will be hosting and live streaming free to the public from Ocean Artworks on Granville Island at noon and 1.30 p.m. every day. Okay. There's also a, a beautiful series that happens at Performance Works on Granville Island every afternoon at 2.30, where we will be both hosting small live audiences and streaming free to the public. And finally, at Ironworks in the afternoon, we have more of the avant-garde and innovative um, material and uh, that will also be streamed to the public and we'll also be hosting very small live audiences. But again, in order to attend live uh, performances by Coastal Jazz this year, we do require people to RSVP because safety is our absolute top priority We believe in celebration, uh, and we believe in safety. So we're uh, trying to find the sweet spot between the two.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, of course, this is all done online. The website address, friends, is coastaljazz.ca. And as our guest is pointing out, because of the limited amount of seats available, those are going rather quickly. But there are still some available for some shows, right, Rainbow?
3: Absolutely, absolutely, and I'd encourage people to go online and check out the full program. And for those of us who are still uh, feeling more comfortable enjoying the music from home, uh, mm-hmm. streaming passes are still available, either for your full festival with thirty-nine gigs, or based on a series. If there's a series that uh, particularly appeals to you, and we do have a live uh, or a live streaming happening. Um, for European programs that happen on June 26th and July 3rd. Those are free to the public. And we have a beautiful international streaming series that comes out of Paris and Amsterdam, which is also free to the public.
0: So this is, again, uh, this is, if you go to coastaljazz.ca and you click on the streaming packages, uh, this is where you find out uh, that uh, you can get all the concerts from a single venue. This is what we talked about weeks ago, uh, about basically how the festival was going to be conducted. The good news this morning, and we're almost out of time, but the good news this morning is it's been enhanced, if you will. It has been
3: enhanced. By um, live music. And I encourage people to check out coastaljazz.ca for the full program and uh, just uh, super excited for uh, the chance to safely bring together some small numbers of audiences with the amazing, amazing offering of music that will be starting to roll out on Friday, June 25th.
0: There you go. It's the 35th annual Vancouver International Jazz Festival. Rainbow Robert from the festival, back with the good news this morning about those live uh, performances, and you can connect with them all at coastaljazz.ca. Rainbow, thanks for coming back. It was great to have you back on, and such a good news story, too. Have fun at the festival.